I want to start off with a little game. Um, and if you are with a group of friends, you could play amongst each other. Um, so you could discuss with one another the answers. If you're not with the group and, or you don't know the people you're with really well, you could just kind of think in your head. I'm going to throw out a scenario or a circumstance, and you're going to identify the person in your life or the person in your group that best fits the scenario, okay? Um, I'm going to call it likely-unlikely. Um, okay, scenario one. Who in your group or in your life is most likely to have their own reality show? I know who it is for me. Uh, okay, second one. Second one. Uh, most likely to drive to another state to see their favorite band play. That's commitment. How about... Okay, second one. How about most likely to lock their keys in their car? Okay, last one of this section. Last one of this section. Uh, most likely to be late to their own wedding. Is there any repeats in there? <laughs> okay. All right, now we're going we're gonna to do the opposite now. Um, who is least likely in your group uh, or in your life to get a speeding ticket? The least likely to get a speeding ticket. Okay, this one's a little bit harder. Who's, who's least likely to get struck by lightning? Okay. One, one more, one more. Okay, one more. How about who's the least likely for it to be revealed that they're actually a Russian spy? It's, it's always those ones. It's always those ones. They always kept to themselves. The unlikeliest. Well, unlikelies, you're in good company. Because God, his pattern throughout redemptive history, is actually working through the unlikelies. That's his favorite thing to do is to work through the unlikeliest. One thing that you can expect from God is that he does the unexpected. Scripture terrain is inundated with stories of surprise. God working through the unlikeliest of people and working in the unlikeliest of ways. In in the words of Old Testament scholar Dale Ruff Davis, as we often like to refer to him as DRD, he says, this is just vintage Yahweh, classic God, doing the unexpected, choosing the unlikeliest, accomplishing the impossible, to show that without a doubt that it's him. For his glory, for his name's sake, but also as a sweet reminder that we can trust him. And 
that we should be ready for anything. And for tonight specifically, that he has his people in the outsider, in the far off and the unreached. Because when it comes to God, don't count anyone out. While we think of God, uh, we could think of God just working this way throughout, like as I mentioned, throughout the entirety of Scripture. It's his pattern from the beginning. Even just choosing his saving love on humans, dirt creatures, as opposed to heavenly beings, heavenly angels. Or think about other people in Scripture, the, him choosing the, the younger Jacob rather than the older by minutes, uh, Esau, or perhaps David, the boy, as opposed to all of his brothers or the handsome and tall Saul. We, we think of other stories like Gideon's army, God choosing 300 of, of the army rather than 20,000 of, ar- of the army to win the war. We think of Elijah drenching the, the, the altar before the, the rivalry or the showdown with the prophets of Baal. We think of uh, the Israelites marching around the uh, Jericho with trumpets, just unlikeliest of ways. And then we think of the life and ministry of Jesus itself. We think of him being born and, and being laid in a, in a feeding trough rather than a crib, or being from Nazareth rather than Jerusalem, or riding in to Jerusalem on a, a donkey rather than a stallion, a kingly stallion. And then really, with the, from the, if you think about it, the apex of redemption itself is the enthronement and the, and the greatest work at the cross rather than a throne. And it's at this crescendo of scripture, at the cross, that we meet an unlikely hero. It's amongst the ministry of Jesus that he... Often you see uh, nobodies. You see the poor, the insignificant, the unlikelies. That that God brings this person um, in an un, in an unexpected way. Just when you think that you kind of get the hang of God's pattern of working through the unlikeliest, just when you start to to think you nail down His pattern or His rhythm, that's. Once again, when God surprises us. When all had abandoned Jesus at the cross, Joseph of Arimathea comes out of nowhere. Never heard of him before, never mentioned again after. He comes at the most pivotal point in all of the Bible. The greatest story ever told. And Joseph of Arimathea, he's just clutch. In fact, if you think about it, if, if this is the greatest story ever told, if the Bible itself is the greatest story ever told, and all movies and all books and all stories find their inspiration in the Bible itself, then every clutch player finds their inspiration in Joseph of Arimathea. So tonight we look at this enigmatic figure. He is a mystery. He is a man who's written about in all four Gospels. It's a man that Mark says was looking for the kingdom. And it actually, in that Gospel, the only time kingdom is mentioned 
was by Jesus himself. But the only other time it's, it's mentioned it was in relation to Joseph. So Jesus mentions the kingdom often. But for, for one person to be identified with looking for the kingdom, he's just a special guy. So tonight we're going to be in Mark's account. So turn with me to Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through uh, 46. Mark 15, verses 42 through 46. Let's read together. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Joseph is the quintessential triumph of grace in that Joseph is a miracle. The only explanation for Joseph is supernatural and invincible grace. So we're going to see this evidenced in four observations from the text. And I'll just give them to you so you can kind of see where we're going. One is an unlikely alliance. Two is an unlikely courage. Three is an unlikely defilement. And four is an unlikely generosity. And we'll start at point one, an unlikely alliance. Verse 43 says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. Now, a member of the Sanhedrin is the unlikely of the unlikely. The ministry of Jesus was filled, as I mentioned, with poor the lowly, the weak, the insignificant. And Joseph was a wealthy man. Aligning himself with Jesus was kind of a glitch in the system, it seems. In first century Israel, the great Sanhedrin, or the council as Mark mentions, is the most wealthy, the most powerful, and the most influential theologically. The Sanhedrin were a group of 71 men, comprised of the top Pharisees and Sadducees. It's easy to, to, to read that group of men, like read into them, or when you're reading the text about when you, when you encounter the Pharisees or the Sadducees, you often kind of could think of them as this fringe group of fundamentalists, these fundies, um, or these like uh, religious extremists. But I think that misses the mark. Because I think what you have with the Sanhedrin, historically, is that in regards to wealth, the 71-member Sanhedrin were like the CEOs of their day. They were the Forbes 500, or the the Forbes 71. Uh, In regards to power, the Sanhedrin were the congressmen. They were the senators. In regards to faith, they were the celebrity theologians. Big Eva. They would have been 
writing all the Christian books, the, the theological ones, the academic ones. And not only that, they'd be writing commentaries, which they did, the scribes. I mean, that was essentially what they did. They wrote commentaries. And not only would they be the faculty at, they would be the presidents at the seminaries. But this elite group, though divided amongst the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they, they became united as arch enemies of Jesus. And with all that wealth and power and all that theological prestige, they aimed it at undermining the ministry of Jesus. And Joseph was one of those men. And it wasn't, and he wasn't just one of those men. He wasn't just one of the 71. Mark says he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. So if you think about it, if you were to ask a Pharisee, hey, fellow Pharisee, um, what do you think of Joseph of Arimathea? Oh, Joseph? He's our guy. He is, uh, without question, uh, the most gifted theologian on the Sanhedrin. I mean, if you have a theological question, you go to Joseph. If you have a, a certain legislature, if, if you find a certain legislature confusing, or if there's a, a historical case that's a little hazy, Joseph has your answer. Or if you went to a Sadducee and said, thoughts on Joseph? Oh, Joseph, he's the absolute best. I mean, uh, financial guru, uh, wisdom and, and conviction unrivaled. So Joseph of Arimathea was the MVS. He was the most valuable Sanhedrin member. For Joseph to have FaceTime with Pilate, as we read, uh, the governor, uh, it means that he had influence. It means that he had respect. Imagine you walking up, well, not walking up to Sacramento. I guess you drive up to Sacramento. But if you were to go to the governor's, is that where the governor lives? Sacramento? I, I would assume that he lives there. Um, if you were to go to his house uh, at night um, and expect to sit down with him, you'd probably get arrested or um, you, you definitely wouldn't get a seat with him. Joseph goes at night and has a sit down or has a conversation. He has FaceTime with Pilate. It just shows you the level of respect and the position that he had amongst that group. But God's irresistible and relentless grace was at work in Joseph's heart. The great Sanhedrin was, had just adjourned from their conviction of Jesus. But it says in the text that Joseph had not consented to their decision. God has his people in 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 the place that you'd least expect. And Jesus had captivated Joseph. This unlikely ally is a showcase of God's miraculous grace. Let's look at point two, an unlikely courage. Verse 43 says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, although we see that Joseph was a disciple, um, he also followed, only followed him to a certain point, uh, to a certain extent. From a distance, he, he, he followed him from a distance. So it says in John's account, John's gospel, that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So it seems that there was a point at which Joseph wouldn't cross. And like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who visited Jesus at night as well, 
uh, Joseph was limited in his ability to fully follow Jesus and fully identify with him. But this, in our text tonight, is the turning point. Joseph took courage. For Joseph to walk up those steps, can you imagine just with every step walking up, you would have to imagine as he took those steps, this is the point of no return. If Joseph was following in the shadows, then then this was his stepping into the light to publicly identify with Jesus. On a human level, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, there's a reason the disciples who had spent so much time with Jesus had fled. Can you imagine the disciples' depression? Thinking that this is the one. This is the Messiah who finally we've been waiting for. And he was just slaughtered. From their perspective... It almost seemed all pointless. So they bailed. Joseph chooses the wrong time to step up. The public disciples, with nothing to lose, become secret disciples. Joseph, the secret disciple, with everything to lose, becomes a public disciple. And so you have to think, this kind of courage, it just doesn't make sense. It's an unlikely courage. Third, an unlikely defilement. Verse 45, and when he, Pilate, learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. Just imagine that scene for a second. The body of Jesus, now your responsibility. Imagine walking up to the cross, maybe after it had been laid down, and then having to figure out how to get the body off the cross. Think about having to remove the hands from the nails and thinking about having to lift up the body. It says that he took him down. Joseph took him down. Just think about how bloody he was. Just drenched in blood. And then trying to situate the body and carry the body to a place to clean it. And then finally wrapping the body. Pastor John says this, he took it down. Mark says he did it himself. He did it himself with his own hands. The cross would be laid on the ground. He would be pulling the hands over the heads of the nails and pulling the feet gently over the heads of the nails of the nail that went, over both, that went through both feet. He would be pulling the thorns out of the dead brow, and then he would wash the body from top to bottom, all the sweat, all the dirt, all the dust that accumulated in the blood would all be washed. And there he was by himself, washing the body of his king. It must have been heart-sick moments 
unbelievable moments for him, unquote. But then you have to imagine, this is Passover night. So, because it's prohibited for the Jews to touch a dead body, Joseph was defiling himself, disqualifying himself from the Passover celebration. One of, the Israel, one of Israel's highest religious leaders, and Joseph willfully decues himself, arguably from the nation's most important festival of the year. That would not go unnoticed. But while tens of thousands of Israelites were partaking of the Passover lamb in celebration of the Passover remembrance, Joseph celebrated what the Passover pointed to, the ultimate Passover lamb himself. Jesus said, Joseph said, Forget the symbol, I'll take the reality. Finally, point four. An unlikely generosity. Verse 46. Joseph laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Matthew's account says this, verse 20, uh, chapter 27, verse 59 through 60. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean shroud and laid it, in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. This was Joseph's own tomb, a brand new tomb, and not a natural cave. It had to be cut from the rock. So it must have cost a fortune, no doubt. Not only this, Joseph, according to John's account, uh, it said that he and Nicodemus went together and wrapped Jesus in 75 pounds of spices. Okay. Now, that might not sound like anything to you. But New Testament scholar Craig Keener, he's one of my favorite um, commentators, tells us that it would have amounted to about 30,000 denarii. Once again, you're probably like, okay, what is that? A denarii was a day's wage. So if you calculate... Today's minimum wage, which I did with my calculator, um, I said I just took the L.A. city uh, minimum wage was fifteen dollars an hour, or will be fifteen dollars an hour soon. Um, at eight hours, and you multiply that by thirty thousand, that would amount to three point six million dollars worth of spices. This was a burial for a king, giving up his own tomb, which, if you know. Jewish burial practices, even today, you can't just, no one can just be buried in a Jewish cemetery. It's very exclusive. Wrapping him in expensive linen and royalty level spices. We then think, when we, when we think of generosity, we often will not think about all our intentions, all our motives while we, while we give something. Um, It's very difficult to separate what we get out of our generosity. Perhaps it's some recognition. If we help out a friend and it hurts us a little, but it's just, it's worth it to see their joy and and their emotions in, in the friend being benefited. But he's not doing it to impress Jesus. Jesus is dead. He doesn't get a well done from Jesus. In his mind, 
from his perspective. For Joseph, there is only loss. And as a member of the Sanhedrin, you have to think, because historically, every member of the Sanhedrin had to be married. So you have to imagine, what was that conversation with his wife like? But Joseph, are you sure? This is career suicide. Joseph, we will not only be thrown out of the synagogue, but we'll be excommunicated altogether. We'll lose our livelihood. We'll lose our home. We'll be ostracized from our family. Joseph will lose everything. And Joseph, if they killed Jesus for blasphemy, what makes, they, what makes you think they won't kill you? The, the disciples obviously understood that. And so what happened to Joseph? There's no mention of him in Acts. There's no sign of him in any of the epistles. It makes you wonder. Did the Sanhedrin get him? We don't know. The guy comes out of nowhere and then vanishes like a ghost of God's grace. What we do know is that God, in his sweet and tender providence, bookended Joseph's service with his name being commemorated in all four Gospels. And at the front end, the sovereign and prophetic word of the Holy Spirit writing about Joseph 700 years before his birth. The words of Isaiah 53, 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. What should we take away from this unlikely servant? One, marvel at God's triumphant grace. Each and every one of you is a miracle of God's regenerating love, if you know him savingly. Cherish him for that. And believe that his unstoppable power isn't over in your life. This should build an expectation that God can and loves to use the unlikeliest of means. So have faith and be ready and willing to be used. And the second point is God, in his triumphant grace, chooses the unlikeliest. So you should expect that he will, in the most far-off person, the hardest-to-reach person, that those people are ripe for God's saving. Have hope for the far off and the unlikely. Have a hopeful and expectant love for your enemies. I want to close with the words of the Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle. We know nothing of Joseph excepting what is here told of us. In no part of Acts or the epistles do we ever Do we find any mention of his name? At no former period of our Lord's ministry does he ever come forward. His reason for not 
openly joining the disciples before, we cannot explain. But here, at the 11th hour, this man is not afraid to show himself one of our Lord's friends. At the very time when the apostles had forsaken Jesus, Joseph is not ashamed to show his love and respect. Others had to confess him while he was living and doing miracles. It was reserved for Joseph to confess him when he was dead. The history of Joseph is full of instruction and encouragement. It shows us that Christ has friends of whom the church knows little or nothing. Friends who confess less than some do, but friends who, in real love and affection, are second to none. It shows us, above all, that events may bring out grace in quarters where at present we do not expect it, and that the cause of Christ may prove one day to have many supporters of whose existence we are at present not aware. Let us learn from the case of Joseph of Arimathea to be charitable and hopeful in our judgments. All is not barren in this world when our eyes perhaps see nothing. There may be some latent sparks of light where all appear dark. Grains of true faith may be lying hid in some neglected congregation which have, which have been placed there by God. There were 7,000 true worshipers in Israel about whom Elijah knew nothing. The day of judgment will bring forward men and women who seem last and place them among the first. Let us learn from the case of Joseph Verimathea to be charitable and hopeful in our judgments. Bow with me. Crossroads, ultimately, this is not about Joseph. It's about the empty tomb. A showcase for the goal of the gospel, which is reconciliation with God. Resurrection of creation itself. The empty tomb is the guarantee that you too will be raised. It's like we sang earlier. And you will give an account for your life. Will you be raised for judgment? Or will you be raised for reunion with Jesus? If you do, if you do not know, you can make sure tonight. Jesus dealt with sin in his death, and he defeated death in his resurrection. He became the first domino of the resurrection life in restored creation. Meaning, he's a foretaste of resurrection. And we, like Jesus, are all coming back. Each and every one of us. If you put your trust and love and allegiance in him, he's yours. Resurrection reunion is yours. Choose this tonight. Father, thank you for Joseph. What a sweet showcase of your miracle mercy. Lord, raise up servants like him from this very group tonight. Will you put within us an expectation and an otherworldly love for those who not only seem far off, but also those who are hostile to you? I pray that we wouldn't use their angst and hatred as badges of persecution, but as motivations for prayer. We love you. And it's for the sake of your name we pray. Amen.